please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Happy New Year and welcome back to your weekly Morning Expresso. Today, if you're watching live, is Wednesday the 13th of January 2021. I hope you and your family are all well. So to kick off this year's sessions, um, I'm joined by our senior macro strategist, that's Sebastian Gurley. Uh, good morning, Sebastian. Are you there? Good morning. Hi. So Sebastian, um, over the uh, towards the end of last year and moving into this year, we've sort of seen an increasing interest in emerging markets. And I was just wondering, you know, what's behind this this increasing optimism that we're seeing? Well, you have to look at emerging market as being a very large chunk of the world economy and uh, a chunk of the world economy that performs, uh, in generally speaking, quite well, particularly in Asia Pacific, uh, and and therefore is attractive because in a world of uh, low potential returns, you have some areas in emerging markets which offer significantly higher uh, returns, higher yield also, and in some uh, rare cases, a better risk-adjusted return. Of course, volatility is always present. So the attractiveness of the emerging markets is also functions of expectations that the Fed and the ECB are on hold for a few years. And then even when they do start to tighten, then you shouldn't expect them to tighten very much. And if you imagine a world where you get some tightening uh, from the Fed or from the ECB in 2023, 2024, and you have on the other side, China, which is operating at a much fa faster pace, you can imagine that there's still a huge amount of differential in terms of interest rates and potential returns in emerging markets. And one should be aware of the fact that generally speaking, particularly in fixed income, it's an asset class, which is underweight. Why? Because it has a history behind it. But emerging markets are splintering between what you could consider more advanced ones and the less advanced ones. And the more advanced ones are starting to look more and more like, like us. If you go to Shanghai, for example, or if you go to New York, there are definite similarities between the two. So a great convergence play, which is happening, which is deeply under invested and which is fed by low uh, interest rates and a high pent up demand for um, returns. So you say that there's still an opportunity and upside. I mean, I, I personally, I put some money in just before Christmas in some Chinese uh, in equity and uh, I've had a, a nice return. I think it's up 11% in a, in a very short period of time. Do you think that this is this trade has already sort of run the risk of, of getting a bit ahead of itself? That's well, a good question. What we do internally is we, we run uh, at the beginning of the year a test in which we ask uh, everyone within our teams where they would allocate their monies. And uh, last year, uh, most of it was EM equities. Uh, and, and so that's paid off actually very, very, very nicely. So and I, I think this is the path to, to look forward to in terms of what is attractive, uh, but also in terms of there are a significant amount of risk. And the risk, of course, is that the this EM trade is uh, is a little bit overstretched. And what we say is, once you do basically get um, 
a, a backup in that trade, and it's just an opportunity to go in. But I think what is paramount in emerging markets is the amount of knowledge of the portfolio managers. Emerging markets are between apples and pears and bananas, which are overly ripe, and you need really specialists basically to be able to differentiate between them. Okay, so nice fruit analogy there at the end, nice one. Um, good, so maybe we could do a quick summary. Um, do we have a summary slide to show? Here we go. Good. So we're, what we're saying is uh, we have this low inflation um, and uh, you know, that should support EM Forex. And the implications is you know, whenever we saw it, see drawdowns, uh, an opportunity perhaps to, to add to those positions. And the, the growth that we're seeing in China is also supportive of the wider region, in fact. Um, and so, uh, so that's uh, all going to drive drive the markets up there potentially in in the months and years ahead. Yeah, and I think the the way to look at it is if you if you take a flight from JFK and you land anywhere in Asia, the airport extraordinaries, the malls are extraordinary, and there's this huge gigantic emergence of a, of a new economy led by uh, the middle class and of course the IT sector, which is deeply appealing to us. Fantastic. Sounds very positive, which is great to start the year. So thank you very much, Sebastian, for, for joining us uh, this morning. What we're going to do now is we're going to move on to the main section of today's discussion. And the topic for, for today is, is really China and Chinese equity and also uh, Chinese fixed income. And for that, I am joined today by two members of the Manulife team. First of all, we have uh, Kei Kong Chei, who is portfolio manager of the Chinese equity strategy. Good morning, Kei Kei, are you there? Good morning, yeah. Hi, morning, of course, for you, it's, it's evening, isn't it? But uh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so good evening. Um, I'm also joined by Paula Chan, and Paula is the portfolio manager of our Remimbi bond strategy. Hello, Paula, are you there as well? Yes, good morning. Hi, good evening. <laughs> so I was just I was just looking at it's not actually the Chinese New Year yet, is it? That's uh, that's at the beginning of February. And uh, I saw that it's the, the year of the rat was 2020. Seems about right. Ooh. Now we're moving into the year of the ox. So perhaps that's going to pull us forward uh, in, in the months to come. So uh, when the time comes, I'll wish you a happy new year as well. Thank you. <laughs> Good. So. Um, we saw in Q1 in 2020, we, we obviously saw this, this sharp uh, drawdown and uh, China was really the only country in the mm. whole world that was able to, to recover very, very quickly, actually. And uh, if we look today, it's, it's now one of, or, or is the only G20 uh, economy to, to end with a positive GDP number. Um, I wonder, you know, what's the recipe for this success uh, in your views? And, uh, you know, is that, is that positive growth trajectory, trajectory? Is that something that is sustainable? Um, and uh -huh. perhaps you could also, you know, make, I'm sure there are risks associated with this. So perhaps that's a big question, but perhaps you could sort of open with that. Yes, definitely. Uh, yes, uh, as you know, uh, ch uh, China has actually done a quite aggressive lockdown during the COVID uh, pandemic, and there are the actually uh, different occurrence of the uh, reoccurrence of the disease, but yet the lockdown has been quite successful and quite stringent, and and that actually give confidence to uh, consumer as well as uh, uh, factories uh, manufacturers uh, continue to uh, to produce, 
as a result, you can see a, a really a V-shaped uh, recovery uh, in terms of uh, uh, industrial production as well as uh, uh, GDP. And you look at it, this uh, China is actually entering into a, a, what we call the second phase of growth, which is primarily driven by uh, uh, domestic consumption, but uh, surprisingly export. Uh, despite the, 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 the trade war between uh, China and US, uh, because of the lockdown in the developed markets uh, where factories are, sh uh, are shut or, or production are curtailed, uh, China exports are actually gaining a market share and export growth has been very strong. And that has actually driven up uh, uh, industrial profit as shown uh, on the chart on the left. And you can see uh, uh, industrial profit actually recovered nicely. And uh, pursuing that uh, with the US election uh, being uh, so-called uh, decided, and uh, people have a, a bit more confidence uh, between the tension between US and China. Although they still are not noises, but uh, I think uh, not likely to worsen further uh, with the Biden uh, administration. So uh, the, we are seeing uh, healthy signs of uh, increase of uh, 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 the fixed asset investment from the manufacturing. You can see the the Chinese manufacturing uh, FAI uh, is actually uh, trending up also. This is a, a, a very good sign for us and, and, and that show uh, confidence in the manufacturers. They're actually investing uh, uh, for new capacity or, or uh, increased automation uh, uh, if they see a, a better future outlook. And uh, I would also like to share the consumption uh, side of the story as well. As you know, consumption has been very strong. Uh, uh, since uh, second quarter of uh, last year, and uh, it continues to, in, uh, to recover very strongly. And but uh, it's lopsided. Uh, you can see the the, the, the chart on the right is is more on the online consumption that is uh, doing very well. But something interesting is that uh, even the passenger car uh, demand actually uh, will actually be declined for almost eighteen months. Uh, start to rebound quite strongly. Uh, this is uh, driven mainly by the the. The, uh, the strong growth in uh, electric uh, vehicle, which I would uh, highlight uh, later. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to that later then. But that's a great introduction to the macro side of things. Uh, you know, obviously you're on the equity side, Paul is more on the fixed income side. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's something that both of you have in common, if you like, and that's the fact that, you know, China today, I think, represents about a third of, of global uh, GDP growth. But... Uh, Chinese equities, Chinese fixed income as well, is is still underrepresented um, when we look at the the main you know global indices. Now, you know what's happening is slowly but surely uh, we're seeing that the exchanges are starting to open up to you know international uh, investors, and I just wondered if you think that this is supporting you know those markets first of all, and also whether with that opening up of the markets, both on equity and fixed income, mm. are you actually seeing uh, new flows? You know, <laughs> I mentioned I, I put some money in at the end of last year. You know, is, is that typical or am I one of a few? Uh, you are the smarter one. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully we can uh, see more of you. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the following chart, you can see uh, since uh, MSCI uh, uh, started in to include uh, A share, into the emerging market index in the mid-1918, uh, uh, flow into uh, China A shares has been increasing a lot, especially yeah. when the, the connect system are, are, are being established. Uh, and uh, 
uh, with uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. As a result, this, uh, the foreigners has an easier exposure to, uh, uh, to the domestic A share via the Hong Kong Connect. And you can see the light blue line that uh, is, is actually growing very strongly. Despite uh, all the US and uh, uh, China tension, uh, that flow has not been uh, decreasing. And that uh, we are likely to see it to improve further, uh, especially uh, 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 the view on the renminbi is actually uh, quite positive. And, uh, and uh, as you say, uh, uh, China equities or fixed income uh, bonds are actually very uh, underrepresented by the global uh, uh, indices. And uh, although the MSCI uh, inclusion uh, has uh, sort of stopped, uh, 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 they are likely to increase uh, the inclusion factor uh, in the next uh, two or three years. And also another uh, a good thing that's happening to the Hong Kong uh, market as well, as, in, as the domestic market is actually uh, opening up to come uh, to, buy, uh, for this, uh, to buy Hong Kong stocks uh, as the, the, the domestic uh, investor in China uh, uh, only exposed to A share before, and now uh, they can go through the via the Connect uh, program to buy into Hong Kong stocks. And you can see the flow into Hong Kong is actually even stronger. Uh, that shows the, the increasing appetite for domestic investors in uh, foreign shares, and uh, Hong Kong is a good starting point for them. Mm -hmm. And what about on the fixed income side, Paula? Yes, sure. Um, Echo to uh, KK earlier on, um, we are quite positive on the domestic fixed income market, both based on the macroeconomic outlook, as well as the market technicals. Now from the macro front, um, the growth outlook trajectory for China is heading to an average six to 7% for this year. And uh, most importantly for fixed income investor, PBOC, which is the central banks of China has already stated very clearly that the monetary policy cycle is expected to be prudent and stable in the coming um, years. So that means um, the, that is very positive for the short end rate to be anchored at the current level. And more importantly, inflation risk is not a major concern as the food prices are gradually coming down. So overlay with that, more importantly for fixed income investor is the credit rating. The sovereign, um, China sovereign credit rating was hit by a downward adjustment last year, but uh, from our internal analysis, that sovereign rating is become stable in this year. So that's also removed one of the uh, risk concern that potentially investor may have in their mind. While from the market technical side, um, the China fixed income market continue to benefit from the global index inclusion thematic. And current foreign ownership for the Chinese government bond market is standing at around 6 to 7%. And given the global index inclusion, we expect the foreign ownership will continue to grow and to be expected to hit around 20% by the year end of 2023. If we translate to dollar amount, as we based on last year um, inflow, we are looking at about US dollar 130 billion um, inflow passive um, in this year as well. So the market generally is benefit from the lower bond supply as well this year, given the special pandemic bond supply that was happened last year is behind us. 
So given the above, we expect the foreign inflow will continue to be supportive in 2021. Back to you. Okay, so, so you think it's going to be supportive. I'm sure that there, is, there are fixed income investors out there who are still cautious. So perhaps you could just tell us, you know, in your view, what are the main arguments? You know, why should investors increase their allocation to China fixed income right now? Sure, definitely. If we look at the um, um, chart on the presentation. Yeah, here you go. Right, great. So um, given the global low to pretty much negative yield environment, especially in, in Europe, um, China fixed income market remains in the positive yield territories. If we look at the chart on the left, for 10-year Chinese government bond currently is offering 3.15% in, in local terms, mm -hmm. which is 200 basis point over 10-year US treasuries and 250 basis point over Norwegian 10-year sovereign. Mm -hmm. um, that's to us, we are standing at the historical wide um, relative to the past 10 years. Well, from the risk-adjusted return perspective, which is the chart on the right, which shows that the China sovereign bond, which is currently rated A by the International Rating Agency, mm -hmm. is carrying a relatively high adjusted return compared to the peers that carries corporate bond risk. And we mm -hmm. do think that the timing of getting asset allocate to this asset class is pretty attractive and well supported by the macro factor that we just discussed um, above. So KK, we, we were talking earlier about um, this, this positive macro momentum that we're seeing right now. Um, are there any other sort of structural drivers that you're seeing that are supporting Chinese uh, equities? And perhaps you could also just touch on, you know, on, on the government, because we know how important the government can be uh, in China yes. and, and also the willingness perhaps for reform in, within China. Uh, yes, you are right. Uh, actually, uh, uh, for us uh, equity investors, we have always been um, a bit more focused on the structural trend we see uh, because it's uh, because of the uh, policy uncertainty uh, uh, in China as well as the interaction between uh, China and US. It's, it's a bit difficult uh, for us to forecast uh, the the so-called macro uh, growth trajectory, uh, trajectory accurately. So uh, we actually a bit more focused on two teams that we, uh, we like. Uh, it has been a medium-term team. Uh, one is a consumption upgrade. The other is about uh, innovation. Uh, we like innovative company. Okay, on consumption uh, team-wise, you can see uh, the, the middle class in China is actually, um, uh, their consumer are actually maturing. You look at the chart on the left, you can see that uh, uh, Although uh, the, the disposable income is growing at uh, maybe 52% in the last five years, but the, 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 there's a switch with, uh, of consumption to more uh, service-based uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, services rather than uh, 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 clothing or, or food or tobacco. Uh, you can see that uh, the spending on education, on recreation, on uh, traveling, um, this is before COVID, of course, and healthcare has actually increased a lot, as as the the consumer actually uh, uh, wanted uh, better quality services uh, uh, other than uh, those provided by, by the public, and uh, they, they are actually uh, open up for uh, the the private operators to operate uh, in uh, in healthcare services. 
as well as uh, education. And um, and actually last year, because of this uh, COVID lockdown, uh, in terms of education, uh, uh, big things have changed. Uh, in, uh, as in uh, the online education actually take off, uh, uh, took off uh, because of the lockdown, uh, uh, online classes uh, appearing, uh, uh, appearing uh, uh, online, uh, uh, the tutorial classes uh, appearing online, actually uh, opening up uh, a lot of teacher resources to uh, more students, especially in those uh, tier three and tier four cities. And that actually uh, drive up uh, 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 big uh, growth in uh, this online education sector. Uh, and uh, other than the, 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 uh, the impact on uh, uh, online education, uh, the COVID also changes uh, how people consume, uh, 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 do uh, 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 consume as in uh, the online e-commerce actually take off uh, very strongly. Uh, yeah. in, uh, in 2019, um, the e-commerce penetration uh, as a percentage of total retail is already 26%, uh, as shown in the right chart, uh, that is even higher than US now. And, and that will actually increase uh, even further. It's expected to, uh, uh, the penetration is expected to increase to 37% uh, by year 2023. Uh, and, and, and the COVID actually accelerated accelerate this process uh, as in um, because of the lockdown, uh, um, uh, elderly people are starting to buy uh, grocery uh, online and, uh, that, uh, and, and, that, and they enjoy the experience and convenience. Uh, so they have actually converted to become a uh, a more frequent user, so that that open up a big bigger user base for these e-commerce uh, companies to uh, to sell their products to. Uh, we are very excited about uh, this uh, uh, e-commerce uh, consumer sector, especially those emerging um, players in the uh, that address to the uh, so-called lower tier cities. And the lower tier cities are are the smaller cities, presumably. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Are, I mean, they are like. Uh, the, what we call the tier three, tier four cities, they are like uh, maybe uh, more than a uh, uh, thousand of them in China. Okay. And, and what sort of population size? Because it's a relative game, isn't it? You know, yes, what we yes, think yes. of uh, in uh, Europe when, is... When, when we saw small cities, it's actually uh, more than 3 million <laughs> per city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, you look at Beijing, it's like uh, big, bigger Beijing is almost uh, 30 million. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, crazy. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the scale is completely different than, than here in Europe, of course. Of course. Good. So um, perhaps switching to the currency, because uh, again, I, I, I did actually have the Remimbi bond uh, fund. I sold it uh, a while ago because I was concerned about the Chinese yuan, and uh, I was worried that actually that there would be a, a weakening of the currency that the, you know, the Chinese government might uh, lower it in order to stay competitive. Um, I got that wrong. I think what's, what's actually happened is now the yuan is, uh, is at its strongest level uh, since, and this is versus the dollar since, since the sort of mid 2018, something like that. And now those fears of devaluation have sort of evaporated. And I just wondered, perhaps Paula, you know, what's changed? Um, if we have a look at the next chart, Right. So um, to your point, um, Renminbi has been the best performer um, in 2021, uh, sorry, 2022, and I wish to be same good performer in 2021 too. <laughs> so back in the 2020, I think is a, a quick summary of the key driver. 
Um, for us, we believe is definitely the weak dollar. Um, and the second factor is, is really China has been proved um, to the world that they are the first in and the first out from the pandemic outbreak. And later, as we move along the second part of the 2020, uh, market is starting to price in a, a, a more a Biden lead um, government, which could potentially means a more stable and predictable US and China relationship. Now, when we start the year off at this um, uh, standpoint, um, we, we are seeing that the renminbi performance is now standing at 96, uh, which is the CFAX weighted basket level. If we look at the, what does it mean by the 96? 96 is really the, the, the two tops uh, that we had um, so far in the past three years for the renminbi in that index. So we are quite cautious at this current level, given the um, positive that's been priced in to the market. In the near term, we think that the market will consolidate at the current level. But given the positive outlook that we have been discussed between the equity and the fixed uh, market, we think that renminbi will continue to be um, performer for 2021. And given a more mild appreciation as compared to last year. And however, we remain very, we remain cautious to the development of the pandemic in China, as well as the developed market around the world. Given there is a sign of researching recently while the vaccine implementation still remain fluid, which might derail the growth expectation for both China as well as other developed markets. The second risk for us is really coming out from the global rate sell-off by the US counterpart. And in the past, we see that if US interest rate starting to go up and it will translate to the onshore market via the currency impact. So we staying cautious, but having said that given the track record of how China has been handling the um, COVID pandemic situation, as well as the current spread, interest rate spread between China and US, we think that these two risks are manageable in 2021. Good. So. Right at the beginning, I mentioned that both of you uh, work for Manulife and, and you're both obviously portfolio managers of the Nordea funds, the respective Nordea funds. Um, but maybe you could just say a few words about Manulife because as an organization, you have a lot of experience and obviously you're, you're on the ground uh, in the region there. And I just wondered how important you felt, you feel it is, you know, being local, being in the market um, and the advantages that that gives versus perhaps an asset manager who's, you know, managing Chinese um, equities or bonds uh, from abroad. Um, maybe I was uh, take the question first uh, or sure. the, the the subject first. Uh, actually, yeah. uh, life has, uh, has uh, over uh, it's been in Asia for over hundred years. It started in Hong Kong and uh, expanded. Because uh, as a uh, insurance company. Uh, we have uh, investment officers in every country that uh, our insurance company uh, uh, exists. So uh, as a result, uh, we have a, a big uh, investment resources uh, around the region. Uh, I mean, we have uh, almost 100 uh, investment professionals uh, across the region uh, sitting and 
uh, in uh, all the major Asian cities, maybe as, as with the exception of uh, Seoul. Uh, and, and, and for the Greater China side, uh, we have uh, like 40 investment, uh, investment uh, uh, professional looking at the market. We have a lot of uh, uh, on the boots on the ground to do a, a, a detailed study on companies and sectors. And we tend to discover uh, so-called under-researched uh, uh, mid-cap companies that are growing very fast, but it's not in the radar of the sell side yet. And we, uh, we are early in, in discovering them and uh, we benefited from uh, a lot of, uh, uh, we generated our alpha from uh, uh, position in them early. And uh, also a bit different uh, for us is that uh, uh, across the region, we uh, uh, in, in the whole Asia, we adopt the same investment process. We call it uh, GCMV uh, uh, with Catalyst. This is more like a, we are more like a gut manager, but because we share the same uh, investment uh, uh, so-called process and language, uh, uh, when we talk to each other across the region, we, we are very we will quickly uh, understand the the the, uh, the the investment thesis of a company or sector that we we, we like and. And that actually had increased a lot efficiency. And um, more important than anything else is uh, our, our Greater China team has worked together with each other for the last 10 years, uh, uh, the, uh, most of the team. Uh, and uh, uh, we have, have actually uh, produced very good uh, alpha. Great. So if I can add on to KK, uh, for the fixed income side, especially for um, China, we have a long-standing track record for over 10 years now, as well as a stable team like KK side. Um, more importantly, the success factor that we equip with is what we're really proud of is our credit team, which based both in, both in the Hong Kong as well as Shanghai. We have dedicated five analysts specifically looking at China credit and covering 77% of the Jackie Chin Chinese issuer. And thus, we can turn it into value for our fund investor. That bottom-up analysis from the credit fund, uh, cr from credit team, which is far more important um, for China market, especially the, the credit market remain um, developing and the valuation is, be, is continue to be homogeneous. So similarly to KK mentioned earlier, we have be able to unlock the unique value in the onshore fixed income market for our, our in investor. So um, maybe turning now to, to ESG, because uh, last year for, for us here, you know, ESG was a really big topic. And for the first time, really, you know, it's, it's been talked about a lot. Um, well, in the Nordics anyway, because uh, they're very advanced, but, you know, broader Europe. Um, it's been talked about a lot, but last year we really started to see you know, flows going into ESG strategies. Um, and, you know, Europe is kind of taking the lead on that. The US is, is catching up. But when I talk to the large international private banks, you know, my clients, they're saying, well, you know, Asia, it's not really a topic yet. You know, it's not a big thing. I just wondered what your feelings is on, in regards to ESG, you know, in China. Um, do you, is, are things evolving there? And, and is that, presenting opportunities? Um, sure, um, let me take the questions and if we can um, take a look at the next slide on the ESG. Now, China is definitely committed to ESG. Uh, why? As this is clearly stated in the last October 14th 
year plan. And the major direction for growth, uh, for the upcoming growth, is involved the environmental protection, poverty reduction, and well-being. Now, China being the first emerging market economy to commit to carbon neutral by 2060 and peak its carbon dioxide emissions before 2030. Now, how to achieve this is driving by the policy directive include the view of the followings. Banks and financial institutions now has to embed the carbon risk analysis into their credit decision. And secondly, is to control the coal-fired power plants and also incentivize for carbon capture and storage technology. Just a few examples to illustrate. And all how is that transferred to the bond market? In terms of the bond market development, the ESG bonds insurance continue to grow and covering wide range of sectors, including banks, um, engineering, construction, and property sector. And these are the top sectors on the list. And we are expecting more opportunity to come given the high commitment by the government. And it is encouraging to witness this development while the current valuation is fairly priced given the average yield is similar to the standard credit bonds. And currently the ESG universe is relatively small compared to the big pie of the China onshore fixed income market is standing at around 1.25%. The total market of the total market size with majority of the bond is still remain in very short duration such as two years. But definitely we are seeing positive development and uh, market opportunities for investors going into the future. Well, I mean, that, that's great to hear that China's taking a leading role uh, in the emerging market. I think that's vital. Obviously, they have huge influence on the, on the broader region. So uh, that's good news to hear. So, so thank you for, for that. Right. Well, we are getting a bit short on time. So we have a summary slide. I'm just going to go through that very quickly. And then at the end, I'm just going to ask you if you've got anything you'd like to add so you can prepare yourself while I'm reading through this, these slides quickly. So um, as we mentioned before, uh, China's economy continues to recover. Um, we have a promising outlook for 2021. And as uh, KK was mentioning, you know, we're seeing this, this uptick in consumption, uh, which is going to sort of drive this. While China is still uh, underrepresented in the main global uh, indices, uh, obviously in terms of global GDP, it's, it's super important. Um, and uh, this opening of both the stock and the bond market um, is leading to increase in, in foreign inflows. Um, and so that will be very supportive for both markets. And you know, finally, um, in terms of you know, diversified portfolios, with optimized risk return parameters, it's getting to a stage now where you know, Chinese equity or bonds can't really be ignored. So um, lots of, of positives there. So yeah, that's the summary. Uh, again, thank you, uh, KK and Paula, for, for joining us this morning. Is there anything you'd like to add before we, we finish the session this morning? Uh, yes, I would like to add, uh, although uh, China equities have done very well last year, but if you look at it, this is uh, this year the earnings, the GDP growth will even, even be higher. It will be north of uh, 8 to 9% GDP growth, and earnings growth should be uh, uh, between 15 to 20%.
So uh, although uh, valuation is higher now, but uh, I think they still uh, the recovery uh, uh, in certain sectors could be still uh, uh, underappreciated, and uh, uh, and you can rely on us, the uh, on the ground uh, uh, managers and analysts, to discover uh, this. Uh, so-called under-researched uh, companies that have a very good uh, uh, recovery or uh, growth potential. A final note from me is that um, to leave investor with the last line is that the, we are expecting the total return for the Chinese bond market will provide a around 35 to 3.75% in the local term. So if we're looking at amount appreciation against the US dollar. So in total terms, we will be quite hitting the 4% um, as a target. Um, if we look back the 2020 performance for the Chinese onshore bond market in US dollar term, it was quite a return number is closing into a 9%. Um, we don't expect such a number will be replete itself, uh, given we don't see a rate cut cycle coming up, but still um, is providing quite a attractive return for investor to consider it. Yeah, I think this is all quite, quite convincing. Uh, as I say, I'm putting my money in. So uh, I hope I hope you're both right. Uh, let's, uh, let's do another session, maybe in six or 12 months time, and we can see how we're doing. But uh, in the meantime, I Yes. Uh, in the meantime, thanks again for, for joining us uh, this week. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. So next Wednesday, the 20th of January, we will see the inauguration of uh, President Joe Biden. So what we thought we'd do is run uh, a special on the US and we'll be focusing in on the asset classes that we think could stand to benefit from um, the new administration. So please do join us next Wednesday. In the meantime, don't forget the Stay Alert microsite that you'll find at nordia.lu. And there we have all of the previous uh, interviews that we've done. We have um, other documents there as well. Well worth a visit, podcasts and so on. Also, if you haven't already done so, uh, perhaps a New Year's resolution is to go to the new Nordea website and that's at www Nordea Asset Management, that's all written together, .com, and there you'll find our latest content uh, on all of the different products. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday.